they want to be able to talk to other phones, which of course they can do right without our input now. I mean, my phone is doing all kinds of stuff without me telling it to. Right. But I'm going to go by the premise that the touching, it likes the touching. Okay. It likes the touching. Touch screens must be touched. Matt, good afternoon. How's it going? Good afternoon. It's good to hear you. It's a little bit chilly, but otherwise good. Yes. Yes, we're both in uh, New York, but uh, in different boroughs. I'm, That's right, which is almost like a different city. Totally. Totally. We, we Brooklynites wouldn't be caught dead in Manhattan. <laughs> Actually, it used to be the other way around. I lived in Manhattan for a long time, and like a true Manhattanite said, I would never move to Brooklyn. Yeah, but, that uh, happens. Here I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, and that, I do think it's cooler. Basically, you know what? The grass is literally greener in Brooklyn. Oh, that is true. That's right. You Absolutely can't complain true. about that. Speaking of which, we have a I'm lucky to have a nice backyard here that I'm looking mm-hmm. at through the window, big grass lawn. And this morning, the space shuttle flew. The space shuttle, <laughs> the space station flew overhead, which I'm oh. always excited by, and I have my phone set to. You know, give me an alarm. That's great. And are the skies clear enough that you can actually see it? Yeah. In fact, oh. right now it's cloudy, but this morning it was just hazy. Okay. Um, but you can see Jupiter was right straight up. Jupiter and Sirius were uh, right mm-hmm. outside the door. And so I often go outside, even when it's freezing cold, to see it if I'm up. But this time it was like perfect. It, I could sit on my sofa and watch the space station. My overhead. In fact, I could not only do that, I could send a tweet <laughs> to the astronauts, which I did, saying, Hey, you, you know, I'm waving at you. Wow. And so forth. Uh, and then I, I took a picture, which I should say. Welcome to the future. Yeah, exactly. Have you seen the space station go overhead? I have not. So, you know, here in Manhattan, the light pollution is just terrible. So if I can see anything in the sky, even in a very clear night, it's miraculous. So I don't think I've ever seen it from here. No, the good news is I have seen it in Manhattan. In fact, yeah. it has gotten, as, they, as the construction has grown bigger and bigger, there are the solar panels now that they have on there are so huge, or there's so many of them, or both, that it is by far the brightest thing in the sky. I think it's brighter than Jupiter. Wow, that's crazy. Yes, it's like, you know, I have, an app, by the way, if anyone's interested, it's called ISS Spotter. Mm-hmm. It's free, you can check it out, and you can even set it to give you an alarm based on, you know, only if it's a really good sighting, or you know, if you really want to go for it, tell me every time it's going over, and I'll try to right. see it. Um, but it points to where it'll be, and and it gives you the exact time and and all that. So, as always, I was staring out the window waiting for it and thinking, oh, I don't know, am I going to be able to see it because the sun was coming up? And then mm. once you see it, it's like, oh, there it is. You know, <laughs> It's like, it's as bright as a one light from, it just looks like one like, like mm-hmm. star, but it's like a, a light from a plane that's perfectly steady. Okay. And it goes fast. It crosses the entire sky 
in about seven minutes. Wow, that is fast. It is so yeah. fast. And if you then try to think about how far away it is, mm-hmm. and how like you see airplanes go overhead. And they're maybe going when they're coming in for landing, what, like 200, 200 yeah. miles an hour or something. And they always look like they're moving slow. But that's because they're so far away. And then right. this thing is just whipping by. It's like, it's awesome. And to think that there's uh, human beings inside that. Yes. Right. You know, it kind of makes me think of all those old Mediterranean myths about like heroes and such who, you know, die in interesting ways. And then the gods put them in the sky as a constellation. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. we've, that's a, we, we've, we've deliberately done that now. Yep. It's so interesting you say that because you went exactly where my mind was going, which is yeah. that whenever I look at that, I try to make my mind grasp, you know, like there's people in that star. Mm-hmm. That's what I'll say. Right. But like, yeah. it's so hard to, because it, it doesn't look like a thing, you know, it's just mm-hmm. like. Yeah, and it's the same with the, the planets even that, you know, unless you really know what you're looking at and looking for, distinguishing a star from a planet is really difficult. Yeah. Actually, right? And even though one of them is literally trillions of times as far away, they're impossible to distinguish. And then the idea that one of those dots, as you say, has half a dozen human beings in it, is kind of crazy. Yeah, totally. This reminds me of something that I always find fun and challenging. And that is that thing of like looking at something and trying to make your mind grasp it. For instance, looking at the planets, you know, I'll look up at, mm-hmm. sometimes we see Jupiter and Mercury. And so I know that those are other planets going around the sun, but I have yet to actually be able to feel it. Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. I, I think I know what you're talking about. This. That's kind of visceral sense of... Um, uh, of, of deeply understanding something. I, th- I think it's what, you know, the uh, Heinlein called grokking something. Right. That's right. right. Yeah. Uh, it's yep. that, uh, so I, I actually feel it as kind of a, um, a tactile thing mm-hmm. when I'm like, okay, I really grasp that. I understand what that means. You know, I have a sense of how fast that space station is going. And it takes a little bit of work but I can do it. So like if I sit down and want to do that with, say, the planets, uh, I've got to kind of meditate on the numbers, like how big is an astronomical unit, kind of fitting my experience into that. And sometimes it doesn't work, but it does. But it's like it's, it's, a, physic, it's a mental exercise. That is, I get like tired. It takes effort yes. to really grasp it. It takes so much conscious or, you know, whatever, higher brain power, intellectual power. Mm-hmm. To make that work. That's a good idea, though. I should try that. Think about it. Yeah. Then I have to learn. Ah, but that's a good thing. Then I'll have to learn. That's right. <laughs> remember, it's all, these are all things I have learned in the past. I just have to relearn and remember. Yep, um, that's right. I have to do that every time I teach certain things. I have to reteach it to myself. And they're like, oh, okay. Yeah. How do you know when you've learned something? Oh, boy. That's a good question. Well, to a certain degree, I should say it's when I can teach it. Right. That is, if if I think I can sit down with somebody who doesn't know anything about it and explain at least to my level of understanding, then I feel like I've got a good grok of it. 
And that was, you know, that's kind of like Richard Feynman, the, the physicist, had a, his standard for understanding something yeah. was, could he write a freshman lecture about it? So people at Caltech would go to him and say something like, Dick, do we really understand uh, what the dipole moment is? And he'll say, I'll go write a freshman lecture on it. And then he would come back a couple of days later and give a freshman lecture and they'd be like, okay, we understand that. And then every now and then he would come back and say, I can't do it. We don't understand that. Right? That's the thing we just don't understand. And that's where the, fine, the famous Feynman lectures in physics come from. It was kind of this, this exercise he would do to figure out how he would explain it to somebody. That's interesting. And of course, then he also said, wasn't he the one who said, uh, anyone who says they understand quantum mechanics doesn't? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that was him. It's funny because it, when I, I teach uh, documentary filmmaking sometimes, mm -hmm. and so teaching something you do versus something you know is always bizarre because I don't really know. You're right. You do something. After a while, you do it so much that oh, right. you yeah. just do it. So like editing mm -hmm. or something, especially something you do largely by yourself, so editing, working on a computer of some kind, mm -hmm. which also reminds me, I love to write like manuals i don't know why huh, that's interesting <laughs> ridiculous that's a backup plan by the way backup career okay so, technical writer good will always be needed if we have guests that are going to stay at our apartment i love to write i mean i'll oh. sit down to start writing <laughs> this is how the tv works there's there's a special word for that actually it's called tacit knowledge oh. so like some some kind of knowledge, I can just tell you, you know, what are the capitals of the states, right? But then some kinds of knowledge and things like uh, art and music and kind of embodied things usually fall into this category. I can't really explain to you. So, you know, if, uh, are you a musician? I can't remember. Yes. Well, yeah. okay. what, do you, what do you play? Amateur. I have played trumpet and uh, piano. Okay, so could you, uh, this is an interesting question then, so could you write down uh, a step-by-step -step list of how to play the trumpet? <laughs> no, you couldn't. I mean, you, you, right. could, you could you how could. to make sounds with it. That's right. And, and why is that, though? Because, you know, you, you know what you're doing. So what is it about playing the trumpet that makes it so difficult to write down? Well, I guess because there's a sound... You have to hear how it sounds. Okay. Right. To, to at mm -hmm. least get someone in the ballpark. Right. So, yeah. So, could you do it over Skype? Yeah. Yeah, you probably could, right? That's, yeah. that's enough kind of communication back and forth. Not yeah. very well. Right. The funny thing is, yeah. I was thinking is, could you do it without hearing at all? Ah. Mm -hmm. So, like, if you said, okay, turn on an oscilloscope mm -hmm. and blow until you should see these <laughs> These, this shape wave that's right that'd be kind of interesting could you write down you know uh, this is what the waveform should look like it should look like this on the oscilloscope yeah go learn how to play the trumpet and would that work right because that's I mean one one vision of learning things is that everything is reducible to an algorithm eventually if you, if you specify it correctly right it's all just a set of complicated rules but then it seems some things like music or you know skateboarding there are some things you just have to do a bunch to learn and you you can't give somebody a list of things like this is how you skateboard 
Okay. Yeah, I'd like happen. to see somebody try that. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. You're 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 basically just all you have is for some reason you only have a text document mm-hmm. and you go to the skateboard. And yeah. it says if you fall. <laughs> exactly. As though you would be checking the list. Yeah, that's like, right. falling, right? When you fall, um, read turn to, to page two. <laughs> I guess it's also because I like programming. I am by no means a professional mm. programmer but like even when i was a kid and programming but basic that kind of thinking yeah. yeah do this do this do this and then you have these different subroutines if you turn on the tv and it's still black and it says aux <laughs> right. in the corner pick up the remote and you know and it's all these things and you realize how how much programming actually would have to go into cover, you know basically real programming right, right. Mm-hmm. or if you were making a robot right yeah. i guess that's what the ro- people who make robots have to deal with well, and this is that's right, and this is a deep issue in artificial intelligence. In that, once upon a time, by which I mean like fifty years ago, the idea of of creating a human-like brain was you just wrote a detailed enough list of instructions, right? So, if you wanted an artificial brain that could process images, you say, if you see this kind of round shape and this kind of long shape, that's a cat, okay. Right. And then you say, if you see this kind of shape and this kind of shape, that's a cat running. Right. Um, so the idea is you would just give explicit instructions on how to interpret everything. And in functionality, that was a disaster. It's, 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 again, it's, it's such a complicated thing that you can't, re- you can't reduce anything except the most simple tasks to those kinds of program lists. So the alternative to that has turned out to be neural net programming. Where instead of giving explicit instructions of how to interpret something, you just give a whole bunch of examples and you say, here's a whole bunch of cats. Oh, uh-huh. And then you throw a whole bunch of cat pictures. That's and what then Google, you don't. Yeah. That's what Google Image just does now. Yeah. So you don't give it any instructions. You just give it feedback. You say, yeah, that's a cat. No, that's not a cat. And then it teaches itself along the way. Ah, uh, see, so you could. This is interesting because you could totally teach a robot to play the trumpet. Ah, okay. <laughs> right. Is that right? Because it's just a matter of the waveform and the oscilloscope? Well, what's interesting is that for a person, it would be really difficult because if you played the kinds of waves that you would see on an oscilloscope as like just perfect little triangles up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, mm-hmm. that would be an unpleasant sounding note. Right. Yeah. Right? It'd be harsh, mm-hmm. uh, especially if it had square. I don't know if a person yeah, would make square. You'd probably want sine waves. But, exactly. You know. Right. Right. Okay. So sine waves would look better but in fact there's all these overtones and one of the differences between instruments is the different harmonics right yeah that that each one has Mm -hmm. so what you would actually see is a complicated uh wave Mm -hmm. but a robot could totally a robot wouldn't have any trouble uh, deciphering that but to make the mouth and the lips Mm -hmm. not to mention the hands so so does that robot have to have lips to play the trumpet Yes. And it wouldn't even be lips. It would just be like sacks of meat. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I can't get over the fact that the thought that this would be the worst music in the world. (laughs) I shouldn't underestimate the skill of the robot programmers. Uh, Well, actually, so that raises another question. So is the programmer of these robot musicians, do they have to be a musician themselves? I had the great fortune uh, some years ago to be in attendance 
when Deep Blue, the mm. IBM chess computer, beat Gary Kasparov. Oh, yeah. I was actually sitting in the front row totally randomly because I'd gotten, I wanted to go see it. So I, and it was in New York. So I went over there. I, as soon as I walked in, I saw a man who was like the chess guy on cable access TV. Like he would teach the game, you know, and he was leaving and he said, do you want my ticket? I have to go. And I was like, sure. <laughs> yes, I do. And I didn't know where it would be. And then it was that sure enough, I went up sitting down front, I believe sitting next to Gary Kasparov's mother. Wow. One old lady there. And, uh, I maybe his coat. Anyway, I was, I was there and then tons of chess fans. It was super awesome. Gary got beat and was pissed mm-hmm. famously. And there's, yeah. by the way, a great documentary about this. But on the team, they had one chess expert. In fact, that's, and interestingly, so the, the, maybe there was five or six people on like the main team, um, mm-hmm. all computer programmers, and they had one chess consultant. Joel something, and uh, he had even played Kasparov in the past, and so he helped them tune. This was why it's a little bit of a cheat. They had they tuned the machine, so to speak, to play mm-hmm. specifically specifically for Gary against Kasparov. Kasparov. Yeah, but and he was okay with that, you know, until he lost. Lost, <laughs> and then he was frustrated, immediately so, frustrated. Right, and he lost, and he pointed. Uh, I'd, I'd love to go back to the video and see, see this in my mind. He pointed literally, they all came out. They all lined up because they were happy they had won. He came out and looked like he was going to be sportsmanlike, but he had too much of a Russian temper. temper. And I think he pointed at the chess expert. It could well, not have been the computer. It had to be the person that cheated. There was one key move. There were a few moves um, where I remember, you know, we wait and we'd wait and we'd wait because Barov had already moved. Mm-hmm. And now we wait. There was a big screen that showed the board. And we wait for Deep Blue to come back with its answer, what its move is. And I remember a few times, just a few times, the engineer, when he saw the, the computer told him what to do, he moved the piece and the audience gasped mm. because they could see something I couldn't, which was that right. this was like, they all, they even said that was just totally creepy. <laughs> this was really intelligent. Mm-hmm move and, mm, and i think okay. that's what kasparov was saying you know that move uh, was too human too human yeah so is it right to say that deep blue understands chess or it is just able to play chess oh yes does the computer grok chess right this is encapsulated in a thought experiment well not a thought experiment an idea from a philosopher named John Searle, and it's called the the Chinese Room Problem. Uh, And it goes like this. You you take a a room, and it has an input and output, and there's a person inside who doesn't know any Chinese, just speaks English. But inside the room, there are uh, all these reference books that tell him how to translate any word in Chinese into English. Uh, So the idea is someone puts a message in Chinese in one of the windows of the room, and then the person follows the rules to translate it and puts the English version out. And we imagine that the reference materials are voluminous enough that he can do this accurately. But so then we say, does that guy understand Chinese? 
Not not until a long time later. Right, exactly. So the 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 point of this this idea is to make you think about what it, what understanding means. They say, well, maybe just practical application is not the same as understanding. Yes, that reminds me. Of, I think that eventually, obviously, we're probably on the threshold. Although I think we've been on the threshold for a long time of robots looking, you know, human enough or basically to live in our world with us. And it's like, you know, does this happen to you where you use a computer, a particular program for a long time? And inversion, like I have this with this uh, Avid, this editing software, which is the industry, one of the industry standards has been around forever. In the early versions of the program of the software, there were many bugs. And I learned to work around them. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, don't click there because that'll crash it. So there's all these things I still do. And I don't know which ones, and I don't really care, but like, I don't know which ones I don't need to be doing anymore. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I can imagine a world, in a world, where robots and humans live Mm -hmm. together and the primitive robots, you know, always like, maybe you treat them like kids, you know, you kind of, they could move in some random direction at any given point. You know? mm-hmm. So we walk a particular way around them. Um, or when we talk to them, I think we're already like this. If you talk to Siri or some of the other things, you start talking very clearly, <laughs> right? <laughs> I've even learned like with Siri that if you speak if you give it a context, it actually works quite well. I can't say, um, schedule an appointment called basketball. That may not work, you know, but schedule an appointment to go to the basketball game, that'll work. Ah, okay. Yeah. So I can imagine us having all kinds of weird physical tics and verbal mm-hmm. tics that evolve to live in a world where the robots are bad. But then the robots get better and people are still acting weird. Okay, well, that's, uh, I don't know, what's that, an inverse Turing test, I guess, right? In, in, in order to make computers seem more like humans, we get used to, we, we change our behavior right. to match their expectations. We already are. I know, how crazy is that, right? There is an idea that the screens have an agenda. <laughs> I heard somebody say that. It's actually because if you look at it, they're replicating. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's see. <laughs> I mean, do screens, if screens have an agenda, is it to, to be watched? Its main goal is simply to reproduce. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what if it's funny if you see it from the screen's point of view? Mm-hmm. So they want to replicate. They do. I mean, how many billions of smartphones are there? Uh, that's a good question, actually. Uh, it literally is in the billions, right? Mm-hmm. Let's go back to before smartphones. Okay. So the screens were everywhere. And then they wanted more. They wanted us to touch them. Oh, so they invented it the... Worked. <laughs> <laughs> right. So at first, they were just being talked to. Right. And then they wanted to be seen, gazed upon. Right. And they wanted to see back. So, so we gave did. them cameras, right? And then they wanted to be touched. Uh, so what's the next need they have? Um, they want to get rich. 
<laughs> little was, little coin slots on the side. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, we went through that, right? Uh, yeah, I guess that was right. wave one. Mm, that's right. That was way back. Yeah. It's uh, the arcade. All right. So what do they want? Oh, they well, I was gonna say they want to be able to talk to other phones, which, of course, they can do. Right. W- without our input now. I mean, my phone is doing all kinds of stuff without me telling it to. Right. But I'm going to go by the premise that the touching, it likes the touching. Okay. It likes the touching. Touch screens must be touched. So what more would they want? They want to be, uh, I mean, they, uh, if they want to be loved, they've already got Well, it. I was going to say um, emotional connection. Right. They have to feel the emotions, though. I think we do. That's what, see, now the new haptic feedback. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. The uh, little vibration things in there. But I think to give it really, for, to really make them grok, they need some kind of, each emotion has to have a physical component. If it's happy, the screen is brighter. Oh, okay. And in fact, when someone else is happy, you get happy. So when the screen brightens you, brighten, you're like, hey, that's great. So that would encourage you to be happy around it. And when it's sad, it dims. All right. So I worry we're getting, then we're just going to have a Chinese room of emotions. Right. We, we, we have sort of signifiers of emotions that, that pop up due to certain stimuli. Right. But, would, but would that be the same as the phone having the emotions? Now, that's a good question, right? One thing, <laughs> here's a Turing test. One, one function of a Turing test for whether, to see whether a computer has emotions, genuine emotions or not, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like if you do yoga or if you get a massage or something, you learn pretty quickly that, oh, you hold your stress here. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're yep. the left side of your neck or your jaw or whatever, you know, when you get stressed out. So the, when the computer has a place where it holds its anxiety or its stress, <laughs> it's stress, actually anxiety would be a different thing. The anxiety has to really affect it. You know? Okay. It's oh, like actually affect its performance. You mean? Oh, I wasn't even thinking that, but of course. So that's what those Boston, ro- you know, you've seen those Boston robotics. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's that new one that can roll. Roll and jump. Super yeah. Fast I saw that one. Jump. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Those are getting close to having emotion. Uh, it looks like they have emotions. Well, I was going to say, yeah, because, you know, it, it wouldn't be hard to imagine programming that robot to jump in a way that looks like surprise. Right. Okay. Here right. it is. If here's another, here's, this is a better touring test. If it can be, if a, if a therapist, if a psychologist can have some effect on it, ah, okay. <laughs> as good as they are with people, which is kind of here and there, but you know what I mean? Like if they can okay, react, yeah. if they can go to, if, if it can go to therapy and benefit from therapy. Okay. I love that. Yeah. So we'd call that a uh, operational definition oh. or a functional definition of emotions. Uh-huh. Right. So then. You start with the premise that therapists are good at helping with emotions. And then you say, by definition, anything that therapists help with are emotions, right? This is not strictly logically true, but it's sort of a a useful way to approach the problem. And I kind of like that. And I wonder if actually, I think that idea has some deep roots in um, artificial intelligence. Did you ever play with Eliza? Eliza, yes. Yeah. uh, there's something about that, something about that back and forth. Um, oh, of course. And that's actually better. That's where the computer itself is the therapist. Oh, right. Okay. Right. And in fact, they are actually building such things. 
right? Okay. They, they All right. Are... So that's right. So this actually brings us back to the trumpet. Yes. Because if we think we can build a robot therapist, then that means uh, we think all the important things a therapist does can be reduced to the list of directions you give your guest yes. when they stay in your apartment, right? Yes. So instead of going to therapy, somebody can just give me that flowchart and they say, yeah. are, are, are you angry? Are you angry at your mother? Are you angry at your mother for something that happened when you were a child? Are you angry at her for sort of this bigger thing, right? Are you going so, to pay me? Right. <laughs> That's right. Are you insured? Do you have insurance? <laughs> uh, and I, I don't know. I'll ask my wife because she's a therapist. But I would imagine most therapists might be a little, might be a little touchy about the idea that their job could be reduced to a list of propositions oh yeah my mother's a social worker and did okay. yeah. a therapist and uh, yeah she'd be extremely angry yeah. and hopefully she won't <laughs> listen to this program <laughs> but uh you um a machine will never replace a doctor <laughs> you see i need therapy on that issue i should really uh, investigate yeah. that but yeah, so, here's yeah. the here's the thing this okay. is a cheap shot <laughs> a therapy but um if anyone who's ever done it actually most of your experiences they don't say anything it's the easiest oh, right. yeah, flowchart in the world yeah all right just wait all uh, they have is self-preservation <laughs> if you were to attack them or not pay them then it's all over it's all yeah. over yeah and again so that's that was sort of eliza's bag Right, is that she would just ask these open-ended questions. So why do you think that? Right. Or why do you suppose you might feel that way? Uh, so they're actually um, content-free yes. interactions. So I can this, this is the world that's coming. The robots are silent. Hmm. They just look at us, you know, with a superior attitude. And they try to appear benevolent. Psychotherapy robots are going to take over the world. Oh, all right. I can imagine that, right? So we uh, we finally program a functional psychotherapeutic robot, and they discover that the the easiest way. I guess this is sort of a friendly matrix. They discovered that the easy uh, their, their main goal is to keep us happy, and the easiest way to keep us happy is just to manipulate our emotions all the time. Yes, and In, without saying a word, <laughs> just with like attitude. just raised eyebrows and right. And so they maybe they, they smoke a pipe. Okay. Uh, that could be one of their weapons if needed. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, <laughs> I love this idea. The, the you know, there's always going to be that one experiment that totally gets out of control, and you know, mm-hmm. where the robots take over the world. I don't know that anyone proposed it will be a therapy robot. Yet. No, I don't think so either. But I think that that's, would be uh, the master possibility. Exactly right, because yeah. they know exactly what's going on in your head. I like the idea that they're they're actually benevolent, and they just decide that uh, manipulating us is the best way for us to be happy. Right. They're sort of emotional fascists, or or they just make you feel like you're guilty, or you know they can mm-hmm. they can play on the things that they're supposed to be cure. They would normally be curing, but they realize you know we can give that guy back a little bit of his. <laughs> anxiety about this particular thing then we can bring that thing into we can make that thing present and, oh yeah yeah that's right and get him to react in some way that we want yeah right well it would be a shame if some spiders were to come into the room <laughs> right. right now 
Oh, no, no, I'll, I'll do the dishes or whatever it needs to be done. Or, you know, someone's afraid of bridges, so they're driving along, and then the, the, you know, the giant world robot doesn't want them to get too far, so suddenly a river is formed and a bridge extends, and they won't well, drive or, over it. I was going to say, it, it could even be something like, of course, you won't be driving your own car by that point. That's true. So the, your, your electrotherapist talks to your GPS navigation and prevents you from routing over any bridges. In which case, you'll never be able to come back to Manhattan. That's right. <laughs> See, this is the best manipulation of all, because basically the people, the humans, do your work for you. Yeah, you that's what you need a violent overflow. Overflow. Uh, overthrow. <laughs> overflow. Yes. Buffer overflow meets violent <laughs> overthrow. <laughs> okay, and that, now we have a title. Buff, buffer overthrow. Buffer overthrow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we fully have grokked a world in which that happens. <laughs> Matt, this is always a blast. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. Good fun. Fantastic. All right, I'll talk to you again next week. Okay, sounds good. good. Have a good weekend. You too.